talk science in this segment, taking up where we left off on last week's program when we talked about sugar, interesting piece in Cosmos magazine, which uh, we highly recommend that you check out. It, it may be online, we're not sure, but uh, it's worth getting your hands on this piece. And numerous other pieces that are on related subjects, such as the current issue of The Economist, which has in its center a special report on obesity. The current edition of New Scientist magazine, another one of our favorites, has a cover story about the nervous system that lines all of our guts and how important this generally overlooked segment of neural tissue has been. In fact, most people don't even realize that it's got a name. It's called the enteric nervous system, or ENS. And the New Yorker, in its October 22nd issue, had a wonderful piece on bacteria. Talking last week about sugar, we referred to a video online on YouTube by Dr. Robert H. Lustig from UC San Francisco. We'd recommend that you check that out. It's about a 90-minute long session, but well worth your time. Dr. Lustig has a new book out. We'll talk about that briefly and hope to bring him on this program in the future. There's another article in, 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 uh, in The Economist, November 3rd issue, about uh, treating disease with microbes. We've got to talk about that too. Well, let's, I guess, start with the current issue of Mother Jones, December 2012 issue with a cover story titled Sweet Little Lies, the 40-year campaign to cover up evidence that sugar kills. From that, we'll try and work our way back into some of these other pieces. But this is a fascinating article by Gary Tobbs and Christian Kearns Cousins which I must say is a piece that is deeply disturbing on many levels. Perhaps you remember, dear listener, back in the 1970s when there was much talk about empty calories and how we had too much sugar in our diet. Well, clearly, in retrospect, the sugar industry fought back, paid for a lot of studies that seemed pretty inconclusive, and then, like the tobacco industry, peddled the idea that, well, the jury's still out on this and you shouldn't oversimplify. But to quote from the article, on a brisk spring Tuesday in 1976, a pair of executives from the Sugar Association stepped up to the podium of a Chicago ballroom to accept the Oscar of the Public Relations World, the Silver Anvil Award for Excellence in, quote, the forging of public opinion, unquote. Note of the authors, the trade group had recently pulled off one of the greatest turnabouts in PR history. For nearly a decade, the sugar industry had been buffeted by crisis after crisis as the media and the public soured on sugar, and scientists began to view it as a likely cause of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Industry ads claiming that eating sugar helped you lose weight had been called out by the Federal Trade Commission, and the Food and Drug Administration had launched a review of whether sugar was even safe to eat. Consumption had declined 12% in just two years, and producers could see where the trend might lead. As J.W. Tatum Jr. and Jack O'Connell Jr., the Sugar Association's president and director of public relations, posed that day with their trophies, their smiles only hinted at the coup they'd just pulled off. They note in the piece that their campaign, crafted with the help of the public relations firm Carl Bwyer & Associates, 
had been prompted by a poll showing that consumers had come to see sugar as fattening, and that most doctors suspected it might exacerbate, if not cause, heart disease and diabetes. With an initial outlay budget of nearly $800,000, about $3.4 million today, the association recruited a stable of medical and nutritional professionals to allay the public fears. They bankrolled scientific papers which contributed to a, quote, highly supportive, unquote, FDA ruling, which the Silver Anvil applications boasted made it unlikely sugar will be subject to legislative restriction in coming years. The story of sugar, as Tatum told it, was one of a harmless product under attack by opponents dedicated to exploiting the consuming public. Notes the piece, over the subsequent decades, sugar would be transformed from what the New York Times in 1977 had deemed a villain in disguise into a nutrient so seemingly innocuous that even the American Heart Association and American Diabetes Association approved it as part of a healthy diet. Research on the suspected links between sugar and chronic disease largely ground to a halt by the late 1980s. Scientists came to view such pursuits as a career dead end. Notes the piece, so effective were the Sugar Association's efforts that to this day, no consensus exists about sugar's potential dangers. Now, in the writing of this piece, the authors obtained 1,500 pages of internal memos, letters, and company board reports discovered buried in the archives of a now-defunct sugar company. They detail how Big Sugar used big tobacco-style tactics to ensure that government agencies would dismiss troubling health claims against their products. They note that compared to the tobacco companies, which knew for a fact that their wares were deadly and spent billions of dollars trying to cover up that reality, the sugar industry had a relatively easy task. With the jury still out on sugar's health effects, producers simply needed to make sure that the uncertainty lingered. But the goal was the same to safeguard sales by creating a body of evidence companies could deploy to counter any unfavorable research. Later on, the piece notes that by now, of course, there's a growing body of research suggesting that sugar and its nearly chemically identical cousin, high fructose corn syrup, may very well cause diseases that are killing hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. article then refers again to Dr. Robert Lustig from UCSF, who made his case last spring in an article in Nature titled The Toxic Truth About Sugar. Lustig, along with two colleagues, observed that sucrose and high-fructose corn syrup are addictive in much the same way as cigarettes and alcohol, and that overconsumption of them is driving worldwide epidemics of both obesity and type 2 diabetes. And some of the diagrams associated in this piece are, are pretty, pretty staggering. Notes that in 1980, Americans added 120 pounds of sugar to their diet a year. Now it's 132, 10% more. In 1980, the percentage of Americans with diabetes was 2.5%. In 2010, it was 6.8%. The number of U.S. children who are obese went over this 30-year period from 5.5% to 16.9%, a tripling. The percentage of U.S. adults who are obese has more than doubled from 15% to 35.7%. There's some interesting sidelights in this piece uh, about how back in the 60s, cyclamates were the artificial sweeteners being used in things like tab. And uh, there was some studies done showing that, well, this might be very toxic, and it got pulled from the market. Well, it turned out that the sugar industry apparently had a hand in this. It's apparently the Sugar Research Foundation, which was founded in 1943 and later changed, itself, changed its name to the Sugar Association, Inc., SAI, 
launched an International Sugar Research Foundation in 1968 to help it scrutinize the safety of rival sweeteners cyclamate and saccharin. A year later, the FDA banned cyclamate based on the study suggesting it caused cancer in rats. Revisiting this research many years later, researchers concluded, well, it just wasn't so. What's interesting is even back in the 1960s, there was an effort being made by the sugar industry to make sure that, um, well, there was no clear connection between sugar usage and heart disease. No, dietary cholesterol is what they wanted to focus on. And it appears that no expense was spared to bring on experts to um, basically toe the party line. In fact, the industry uh, put together this Food and Nutrition Advisory Council, and its first act was to compile a Sugar in the Diet of Man, 88-page white paper, published it in 1975 under the um, auspices of Frederick Stair, founder and chairman of the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. The document was a compilation of historical evidence and arguments that sugar companies could use to counter claims being made that their product might uh, have problems with it. This document was sent to to reporters. The Sugar Association circulated 25,000 copies of it along with a press release headlined, Scientists Dispel Sugar Fears. The report conveniently neglected to mention that it was funded by the sugar industry. While this uh, document was being produced, the FDA was launching its first review as to whether sugar was, in the official jargon, generally recognized as safe. This was part of a series of food additive reviews the Nixon administration had requested of the FDA. The FDA subcontracted the task to the Federation of American Societies of Experimental Biology. Turned out not surprising that some of the people on this committee were pretty friendly to the sugar industry. According to the uh, article, the generally recognized as safe committee's review, it turned out would depend heavily on sugar in the diet of man and other works by its authors. Noting that at one point, the diabetes chapter of the review acknowledged studies suggesting that long-term consumption of sucrose can result in a functional change in the capacity to metabolize carbohydrates and thus lead to diabetes mellitus, but went on to cite five reports contradicting that notion. All had industry ties, and three were authored by Ed Bierman, including his chapter in Sugar in the Diet of Man. Well, back in 1976, in January, the GRAS committee published its preliminary conclusions, noting that while sugar probably contributed to tooth decay, gee, you think? It was, quote, not a hazard to the public, unquote. The draft review dismissed the diabetes link as circumstantial and called the connection to cardiovascular disease less than clear. Anyway, the thrust of all this was that uh, USDA guidelines have pretty much remained towing the sugar line. Uh, Notes that in 1985, when the USDA updated its own dietary guidelines, it retained the previous edition's vague recommendations to, quote, avoid too much sugar, (laughs) but stated unambiguously that, quote, too much sugar in your diet does not cause diabetes, unquote. At this time, the USDA's own Carbohydrate Nutrition Laboratory was still generating evidence to the contrary and supporting the notion that even low sucrose intake might be contributing to heart disease in 10% of Americans. But by the early 1990s, the USDA's research into sugar's health effect ceased. Sugar has been winning this battle in public relations now for four decades, but um, the piece concludes by noting that in recent years, the scientific tide has begun to turn against sugar. Despite the industry's best efforts, researchers and public health authorities have come to accept 
that the primary risk factor for both heart disease and type 2 diabetes is a condition called metabolic syndrome, which now affects more than 75 million Americans. Metabolic syndrome is characterized by a cluster of abnormalities, some which researchers in the sugar had identified 50 years ago, including weight gain, increased insulin levels, and elevated triglycerides. Robert Lustig has said recently, scientists have now established causation. Sugar causes metabolic syndrome. The piece further notes, newer studies from the University of California, Davis, have even reported that LDL cholesterol, the classic risk factor for heart disease, can be raised significantly in just two weeks by drinking sugary beverages at a rate well within the upper range of what Americans consume. Four 12-ounce glasses a day of beverages like soda, Snapple, or Red Bull. The result is a new wave of researchers coming out publicly against big sugar. I recommend you read this piece. Speaking of Dr. Lustig, his new book is titled Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. Notes new scientists, the number of obese people in the world has doubled in the past three decades. During the same period, the way we eat has changed. The proportion of meals eaten outside the home has grown. People have come to rely more and more on ready-to-eat processed foods, and sugar consumption has soared to the highest levels in human history. We are going to get a hold of this book, and we're going to see if we can't bring Dr. Robert Lustig on this program next year. We'd also refer to The Economist. Their, their special section on obesity is a worthwhile read. When we cited the stat on last week's program about how many Americans are overweight, I had to think about it afterwards to, to ponder, could, could it possibly be true that with an average height of five foot nine, the average American is now weighing in at close to 200 pounds? Well, apparently we are getting there. Scary stuff. Of course, we're going to learn a lot about obesity as we understand more of the uh, physiology of our gut. And for that, we'd recommend uh, the current issue of New Scientist magazine. Well, we've seldom been more topical, I think, uh, than uh, in the topics we're discussing today. We take a look at the interplay between our physiology and particularly our gut microbes and uh, things like sugar intake and how they affect hormones that stimulate appetite like ghrelin and hormones that cut off appetite like leptin. Well, we're going to have a picture that's going to maybe allow us to fight obesity much more effectively and all the diseases that go along with it. But I'm holding the two pieces in my hands here from, uh, from The New Yorker titled Germs Are Us by Michael Spector, an excellent read. But uh, we're not going to have time for that today, so we'll have to defer that to the future. But I do want to quote from some of the purple prose coming out of the normally sedate economist in their science section from the November 3rd issue. It is a repeat of things we've talked about on this program before, but of course the British managed to express it so much more succinctly. And I quote from the magazine, One of the crucial transitions of modern healthcare was from herbal to chemical medicine. Doctors had known for millennia that willow bark and poppy sap relieve pain. But it was not until the late 19th century when Felix Hoffman synthesized versions of their active ingredients, namely acetylsalicylic acid and diamorphine, or aspirin and heroin, as they are more commonly known, that proper pharmaceutical science got going. But just possibly, something similar is happening now. The past few years have shown that having good relations with the hundred trillion bacteria which inhabit the gut is essential to human health. If relations break down, hostile bacteria may invade and previously friendly ones may turn hostile. When things do go wrong, though, doses of corrective bacteria can make a difference. 
These may be administered orally in foodstuffs, such as yogurt, or, and those of nervous disposition should look away now, anally, via transplants of feces from healthy people. Some doctors, however, see these approaches as the equivalent of deconcoctions of willow bark and tinctures of opium. They would like to put the whole idea on a more scientific footing, and two groups of them have just published papers that are steps on the road to doing so. In one study, mice infected with Clostridium difficile, which is causing many human deaths, 14,000 a year in America alone, could be fought with, quote, good bacteria, unquote. In fact, one combination of six species, three of which were previously unknown to science, worked almost perfectly in the mice. In another case, some genetically engineered bacteria were introduced in the guts of mice, which uh, had been tweaked to have some inflammation in their guts, and the bacteria with the additives involved were able to quell that inflammation. This sort of stuff is going to have applications in treating infectious diseases, in treating obesity, and in treating diabetes. It's all very exciting. Is this stuff going to represent a a revolution in science uh, comparable to... uh, distilling down aspirin and, uh, and morphine or heroin from natural ingredients? Well, uh, we're going to go on record as saying, yes, we think it will be. Although we don't have time to go into much detail about the Michael Spector article in the New Yorker, I do want to cite at least one little item from it. It cites a tale told by Andrew Goldberg, who's director of uh, ENT surgery at UCSF Medical Center. He said that one day in 1986, uh, a patient came in who had been having just a constant battle with infection after infection after infection in one ear that they could not get better using various antibiotics, various antifungals, etc., etc. patient came in one day and announced to the doctor that he had cured himself. Did the doc want to know how? The doc assumed he'd retaken one of the medicines he'd had before. No said the patient. I took some wax out of my good ear and put it into my bad ear, and in a few days, I was fine. Goldberg told the author of the piece, I thought he was nuts. and never gave the encounter the thought until a couple of years ago when he began to investigate the causes of those common ear infections. Goldberg explained that earwax contains many bacterial species that antibiotics might have destroyed one or more in his bad ear. It was actually something like a eureka moment, he said, chuckling. I realized this patient was the perfect experiment. A good ear and a bad ear separated by a head. The guy wasn't crazy. He was right. Clearly, he had something protecting one ear that he then transferred to the other ear. Drugs didn't cure him. He did cure himself. It really is exciting stuff. Exciting times we're living in and all sorts of options are going to be available in the not-too-distant future, we think. At any rate, we've got to take a short break, unfortunately. So let's do it. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll talk about more miscellaneous stuff in the third segment. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. But we have to watch out for bacteria that can spoil our chicken. Bacteria practically everywhere. Everywhere you look, in the kitchen, inside the cooler, in the dining area, in the restroom, on our raw chicken. And like I said, bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. Bacteria. 